welcome back to the Building a Fighter podcast. My name is Alex Friedman. I'm a strength conditioning coach out of Denver, Colorado at Landau Performance. As we, with me, as always, is Austin Shane, sports chiropractor out of Phoenix, Arizona um, at Warrior Sports Wellness. And then we have a special guest today, Dr. Brian Geardy, who is one and his most um, prestigious accomplishment, my graduate advisor. Um, and then secondarily <laughs> to that, he's associate professor and director of the Masters of Arts in Strength and Condition or uh, in Sports Coaching at the University of Denver. Dr. G, how you doing? I told you to never tell anybody that I was <laughs> your teacher and advisor. Well, now a whole whopping <laughs> maybe fifty people know. So hey, I can see, I can see why you don't want that getting around. This is good too, because uh, my daughter just at dinner just now uh, mentioned wanting to go into chiropractor. Uh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah nice. It doesn't really flow off the tongue. Go into chiropractor medicine. Yeah. Go into chiropractic techniques and therapy. Yeah. Be a chiropractor. This will be, a, this will be a, uh, an interview for you as well. Be perfect. Perfect. I like talking. Let's keep it popping. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Dr. G, can you tell us a little bit, I mean, your brief uh, bio in strength conditioning and then into uh, your professor role and uh, sport coaching, if you will? Sure. Uh, the quick version, we'll do the kind of pit stops along the way. Perfect. Um, after uh, I lifted weights in high school, you know, I, I literally lifted uh, every day, except for Wednesdays and the weekends, for about 90 minutes to two hours after school consistently for, for four years straight. Uh, so I started lifting a little bit in, in eighth grade, and I just picked it up kind of on my own. Uh, I was reading Powerlifting Magazine, Flex magazine. Uh, shout out to Louis Simmons, you know, recently passed away. And, mm-hmm. and I was reading some of Louis articles in old powerlifting USA magazines. Um, and, and went to my first competition, had no idea about rules. I had no coach. I had nothing. So I just bring my regular gym bag and they're like, no, 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 you know, all this stuff. <laughs> so I had no, I had no idea. I finished 13th, um, my senior year and then went off to John Carroll University to play football and, and uh, go to college uh, too. And after a year of econ, I said, the heck with uh, this business major. This is terrible. I'm going to go to phys ed and exercise science because I love sports and working out. Um, so my sophomore year, I was also doing athletic training. So I was a student athletic trainer playing football. Uh, I also had a concentration in fitness specialist. So whatever they had to do, uh, I, I did it. And uh, some of the, the smartest folks were the athletic trainers. We didn't have a strength coach back then. This is, you know, I, I went to college in 1997 and graduated in 2001. Oh, man, I thought it was like the 70s. Close enough. Yeah, I had, I had hair back then, too. I had a tight fade. <laughs> Um, so actually the same week, uh, we talked about subluxations and dislocations in class. I dislocated my shoulder, uh, externally rotating, horizontally abducting my shoulder, my arm to try to tackle the quarterback. Uh, and he cut back and, and that was the end of my shoulder. Um, and then that year, a few months later, I ended up getting long story. I got an internship with the now Cleveland guardians baseball team. Wow. And uh, in strength conditioning. And so I was doing that uh, for the last two years uh, and and had just a fantastic time. The the Cleveland baseball team, too, had a terrific developmental system, very expansive, uh, progressive. Uh, At one point, you know, almost like half of pro baseball strength coaches worked, had worked in the Cleveland system. Uh, So I, I was just a dumb, you know, college student at the right place at the right time. You know, and my job was to go down there from 12 to 2 and clean up the weight room. And I got paid minimum wage, which back then was like 5.15 per hour. Um, 
And then, you know, I was able then to stay after that to help with players, maintenance, you know, cleaning, you know, uh, putting machines back together, breaking things down so they could take it on the road, whatever they needed to do. You know, I was the, I was the errand boy and did it. Right. Um, and so from there, um, a guy I coached with Carlo Alvarez, who's still coaching Carlo is actually after, you know, a billion different jobs too. He's coaching at a, a rival school of mine in Cleveland. And, and he's originally from Puerto Rico too. And we met in Cleveland. Uh, so it's just a wild, you know, really is a small community uh, of coaches and others that know everybody. Uh, so Carlo introduced me to Johnny Long in Tennessee. I uh, went down to Tennessee and interviewed. <clears throat> they luckily needed a baseball, football strength coach. And so I kind of filled that role. Uh, my first year, I ended up teaching phys ed as well. So I taught racquetball and weightlifting in the phys ed department. Uh, then I became a GA the second year in athletics uh, but from 2001 to 2009, was a head strength coach for baseball, uh, system of football, uh, helped out with other sports. I, I helped coordinate cheerleading for a year, uh, tennis for a year, uh, supervised a little bit of our education internship program. Um, and, you know, it's about the, 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 throughout the 2000s. So things have kind of become, I think, more structured and formalized since then. But this was really kind of early on when folks were really starting to think about uh, staff development and and developing a, an educational organization, uh, not just, um, you know, having interns learn by apprenticeship. So actually I think there's, there's pros and cons to both. It's not a, it's not a necessarily a, a progressive thing that we're doing uh, always nowadays. A lot of times I think it's more indoctrination than anything. Um, so at Tennessee, I did my grad work in um, my master's is in human performance and sports studies, concentration in sport management. Uh, but I started studying sports psychology, a bit of sports sociology, um, and then my PhD is in educational leadership and policy studies. Then the name changed a few times, but I actually did it in the education department, uh, thinking that I might become an athletic director uh, at some point. And uh, I was still studying collegiate, intercollegiate athletics, coaching, uh, and, and did a dissertation on poor coaching. Um, all, a lot of folks were studying great coaching, effective coaching, good coaching, all these different adjectives. And so uh, Andrea Becker, who graduated from Tennessee and published on, on great coaching, had, had picked that study up and did that a few months before I was getting ready to take off with my dissertation. So I just kind of ended up flipping it and did poor coaching. Um, and in the very for, formative to me, too, <clears throat> was that the uh, sociology of coaching research. Uh, so scholars like uh, Jim Dennison, Robin Jones, Paul Potrack, Chris Cushion, uh, those were really the kind of pioneers and they, and they wrote, literally wrote the first sociology of sport coaching textbook. I was reading their work in grad school thinking like, wow, man, this is really the kind of interesting reading that I wish uh, I could do. And, and that um, I really, I really enjoyed it. I found it was interesting and stimulating and something different too. Uh, we'll have to see about the dog here. And, and so uh, that, that subsequently in the last you know 13 years has really been my focus is, uh, using sociological theory and methods and thinking to explore uh, coaching. So that was five minutes. <laughs> long, too long already. Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. I uh, I don't know. I kind of picked up on a f- couple different things as you're uh, telling us your history there. But one of the things that I always hear and I always kind of come back to with successful strength coaches or guys that have pivoted from strength conditioning is like, they always say is like, I was the right at the right place at the right time. You know, and I think that's a good, humble, you know, 
set of circumstances. But I was wondering if you if you had any takes on like how to be that right guy at the right time. You know, like yeah. I think everybody's trying to make it happen, right? Everybody wants to do the strength and conditioning thing until the wheels fall off. But like, how do you make that break? I guess uh, I don't know that you can always too. I mean, being honest about it, I mean the idea too, right? And, and again, in academic speak, the word is meritocracy, and life is not a meritocracy. It is not always not. You know, that, I'm sorry for all the gurus out there that love to sell their books and their nonsense. But plenty of research that shows that most, in most instances, societies tend to reproduce. You know, the same sort of outcomes in many ways. Um, so the idea that you can just work hard and plan your destiny, obviously you can affect it, but on average, you're not going to be able to just go out there and, and like you said, like, we're going to grind it out. Now we're going to grind and keep on pounding until magic happens. Yeah. I mean, you know, occasionally that'll, that'll work out. Um, you know, but all right. So to answer the question though, right. With that caveat that I, I really, at times I'm skeptical about that sort of thing. I'm very critical about that. You know, right. I, I grew up in Cleveland which happens to have all of the professional sporting teams, basically. Right. You know, so if you're living in, you know, uh, let's take, you know, Podunk, Vermont, where some, you know, coach like Scott Caulfield or something would grow up. Um, there you go. I just increased your viewership. By oh, seven, yeah. Plug. Seven. We'll tag him. There you go. Um, you know, he's sitting around just, you know, sucking maple syrup out of a tree over there. <laughs> Definitely so, thought that was going a different way. But, there, but there's, you take it easy there, Freeman. Uh, but but there's no but there's no right there's no protein. So you have to keep you have to keep hustling at it somehow, right? Like right. you know you have to keep trying to get somewhere so people know people, uh, and then you have to do a good job. You have to know people or do a good job. I mean, I had an athletic director tell me that years ago, right? That yeah, you either get where you're at because you're really good at it, you know, or because people like you. And there's some truth to that. That interpersonal skills, networking, and being good at your job will will get you places and hopefully keep you places. But you know, you can point to we can point to coaches that we all know that were really good, and some that weren't weren't so good. Uh, that you know they got positions that were really good, or, and then they lost positions that were really good. So you know, as you're moving around and, and, and folks are thinking about career development. Uh, you know, professional baseball, specifically minor league baseball, is a great opportunity too. You know, we had a student right in our program that didn't even know that minor league baseball has strength coaches. Right. So to, to kind of get your feet wet and to develop and hone your craft and get skills and confidence and competence uh, is a great place to do it. I think tactical, and obviously we know that that's growing. Tactical jobs are another great opportunity for folks, uh, police, fire, military, uh, to, to hustle and get some skills and, and work. Uh, I was just just that too in town here, a, a club. Uh, now I'll give them a shout out too because they had a great experience, a great tour, Vasa Fitness, where it's a big box club, but they're doing things a bit differently in terms of group fitness and the management of the whole club, the personal trainers. And so I think that's another viable club. Uh, we were down, I'm sorry, this past week, I, I took uh, students on a spring break trip all around Colorado, checking out sport, wellness, and recreation facilities. So this stuff, we, we checked out about 18 places in five days, talked to about 30 folks, um, and just had a great kind of time uh, seeing everybody and, and connecting and learning. But we were down at Lauren Landau's gym, uh, Landau Performance. Well, I mean, Alex, I'm talking to you, and I ran into you there, obviously. Jeez. Um but I think that's another opportunity where folks can work as performance trainers and have different opportunities and develop their careers. Well, you know, back when I was in school, it was, you know, personal training, opening a gym, you know, and like spin classes. And you were like, 
when I found out strength conditioning and, and they had him in collegiate and professional teams, I was like, you know, word, this is yeah, real. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let, me, let me go check this out. And, and I did what literally whatever they said, you know, and the biggest compliment I had when I was 19, 20 years old was this is the cleanest weight room we've ever had here. And we've had a dozen interns before you. So, well, and, good. and that's a good point to know too, is you were, you were willing to do the stuff that other people wouldn't do. Right. If <laughs> I could think about, I, I graduated 80 in Cairo school. If they got asked to go work in a sports med clinic and just clean up for three hours a day, I would bet you 95% of them would say, I'm above that. I don't need to do that. I'm, I'm getting a doctorate degree versus yeah. 5% would go in, do the damn work <laughs> and then show what they could actually do. Cause they get an extra two hours with the docs there, or you get an extra hour with a patient that you get to talk to. That's yep. such a big point in people going through the internship phases and through like the beginning phases is putting the work in and getting your, like, you're never above anything. No. And it, for me, Austin too, that's, you know, the leadership training and formal education I've had on leadership, you know, and, and doing it, that's what you do, you know, and yeah. I've never respected anybody that I've had to work with or for that, you know, won't clean the weight room or won't take out the trash, you know, and do those things. Um, not because, you know, they, you can't have other people do that and, and, and your time is valuable, but, you know, doing that at times also, you know, shows that you're out in front leading, you know, serving you're not any better than anybody else too. But, you know, people get egos, they get fat checks nowadays. Uh, and I, I worry about the increasing salaries that people have and, you know, how much they're actually giving back and really care about, you know, young folks or exploited people uh, and giving back to the, the community. Oh, absolutely. And that's a, that's a lesson too, that I think sports can impart on you. And I, I know that was kind of a big point through our graduate program, or one of the points at least I learned is like the, the sport ethic, right. That like going through sports makes you a better person. But uh, in this instance with, you know, it was my high school wrestling coach and we're talking about leading from the front. If nobody picked up the mops after practice, our head wrestling coach was mopping the mats after practice. Right. And so that's where you grow a little respect for him, but then he also has an opportunity to lead from the front and from the back. But, um, but yeah, I mean, sports can teach you, good lessons, but they can also not, I guess. The question is, the the way to phrase it is, under what conditions can sport lead to positive or desirable outcomes? Under what conditions can sport, right? The whole idea that, you know, sport is a thing that leads to, you know, builds a gosh dog. I mean, sport builds, right? Like so many cliches, like it's just one cliche after another, right? Like sport builds character. No, no, no. Sport reveals character, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, stop, <laughs> just stop, like, uh, you know, in the in the scope of the social sciences and just you know complex thinking, we've reduced it to that. Uh, not all, yeah, it's like not all like big picture ideas have to be put into one soundbite. You don't have to put no. it all into one sentence. <laughs> it's funny. I, was, I mean, I remember I remember coming up with a line too, right on on the Twitter. Uh, that uh, the tweeter on the Twitter, yes, on the Twitter. Love it. We're here for it. Wait until I say Graham later. Um, <laughs> so they and I and I said right, like everybody today in today's age, and you see it in sports performance and strength conditioning coaching too, right? It's about marketing and and, and converting your social capital into economic capital. But yeah. I, I said, you know, right, we're so thirsty for knowledge, but we're you know spitting out sound bites, you know, left and right, you know, and that's all people want, you know, is is the clicks. Uh, and, yeah. and there's all sorts of goofballs on on the gram in particular that, you know, are dressed in spandex and tube tops 
And, you know, some of them are obviously roided out of their minds or, you know, they're working out three, four hours a day. And half of that is taking pictures and not actually doing anything else. Um, but, you know, it, it's a nice butt or some pecs to look at and sounds great. You know, no, it's, it's terrific. It's terrific. Who's the new guy right now? The liver king. See that uh, guy? Yeah. The, the steroid king. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Oh steroid king, you know, he's just 12 or whatever chicken breasts and all that. And he, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Gross. All right. <laughs> Fitness, quote unquote. Let's do some basic caloric math and, you know, realize that you're full of garbage, but, you know, good luck with your fame and fortune. You're going to have a heart attack and die when you're 50. <laughs> yeah, you probably. Know? Meanwhile, everybody's goofing on you and, and they're following it because they're goofing on you uh, and hopefully not taking you too seriously because, you know, you are a goof. I don't right. know, man. You would be surprised with some of my fighters that are like, hey, should I uh, should I start doing this? I'm like, that guy is not clean. I promise you he's not clean. Oh, no, there's totally not. No, I mean... <laughs> There was a good article too on on I forget the website too, but a few weeks back um, about like the underground right talk in those areas. Those, I mean, you know, I mean, I've been just I've, I've trained. I'm a champion. I was right I, in nineteen when I was nineteen. Then eventually, right, I became a champion powerlifter. Um, but you know, even at the at the top level, in, especially in bodybuilding, I mean, I, and obviously other strength sports too, like powerlifting and other other, other events. I mean, the top athletes, a lot of them are using some sort of illegal. Yeah steroid, growth hormone, insulin, et cetera. You know, after they all are done and retire, many of them will say that, you know, they don't do yeah. it while they're competing. Uh, but you also have to train, you know, they work extremely hard too. Right. Uh, not, nothing to take away. I did, I did it too, right? I was training for four days a week for two hours and, you know, tight schedule on sleep and nutrition and doing the best I could with that. But, you know, anybody that's, you know, 240 plus pounds, you know, five foot 10 with average genetics, but he's shredded out of their minds. And, you know, especially as you get older, I just turned, uh, I'll, be, I'll turn 43 this year, but you know, I'm like, no, 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 That ain't how that works. That just ain't right. But um, all right, going back to some of your research too. Um, and this is kind of, I don't know where I wanted to deep dive or get yeah. your opinion too, because I know a lot of, again, a lot of coaches I've been exposed to or know through the program know a lot about sport coaching research, but I don't feel as though that's a popular topic among sport coaches, right? Which rightfully so, but um, back to kind of your uh, doctoral dissertation, I believe you said, um, what is poor coaching versus good coaching? How do you quantify those terms? How do you, you know, make, make any sense out of this? Like that's good coaching or that's bad coaching. How do you, where's the, the measuring stick, I suppose. Hey, we, we, I taught you qualitative research and you still right away <laughs> hit me with quantifying. <laughs> I mean, you do a final project that's a personal narrative. You're literally writing a story about your life and experiences. And then you hit me with quantifying poor coach. Hey, this is not only for me. This is for the people listening as well. You know, our massive audience, they need, uh, they need some insight into this type of research. So. <laughs> Uh, I, I I actually I, I it's funny I I did think that when I was writing my dissertation I thought that I was going to so I studied that qualitatively I interviewed athletes about the time they felt like they had a poor coach so in a strict sense it's athletes perceptions of their reflections of a time they felt they had poor, been poorly coached right. if I want to be super you know qualifying scientific in in that so the major kind of things that the athletes identified were. The coach was poor at teaching, you know, that they gave bad instruction, uh, bad motivation, 
they treated everybody uh, maybe the same instructionally and motivationally that, you know, they would just kind of say the same thing, like one size fits all. Uh, they perceived the coach to be uncaring, you know, and unfair. So the coach would play favorites. Um, uh, the coach was selfish. Uh, you know, that it was kind of like this Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde's, is that right? Um, sort of thing that, you know, the coach would sell them something nice and say, oh, you know, come to college here and it'll give you all these nice things and you can major in whatever and, you know, treat them all great. And then once they got there, they just treated them like trash. Um, and if they got hurt, I remember one quote, quote, you know, this is now 14, 15 years ago. You know, when I got hurt, I got discarded like a used battery. Um you know, so like right, when you look at the psychology of injury literature too, like really like the worst thing you could do would be to isolate somebody mm-hmm. or uh, remove them from the team and or reduce their sense of belonging and their athletic identity. Um, I mean, it happened to me when I got hurt too and, and my shoulder popped out and I'm now in rehab and in a training room. Uh, I'm not going to practice. The coaches, nobody's calling me. Nobody's checking in. Um, yeah. You know, and I, and I couldn't really work out as much as I wanted to either because I got my arm in a sling. Um, anyway, going back to the dissertation, so uncaring, unfair, uh, degrading, you know, degrading name calling. Not so much uh, athletes didn't report in my study any sexual abuse. They did report verbal, emotional, um, and a little bit of physical abuse. Uh, subsequently, I've kind of studied that a bit more in the last several years again, and uh, we're doing some research on that that I can talk about. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, the athletes coping, athletes coping with response to that poor coaching. And I think this is part of the benefit, too, of, of qualitative research is showing that ebb and flow of processes and outcomes in that uh, the athletes talked about if they had a poor coach that was bad in instruction, they might go read a book, watch a video, learn from somebody else, go back to the old coach they had, uh, talk to their teammates, ignore the coach. Uh, they would also find social support. And they would have their teammates maybe pump them up and give them uh, positive praising, reinforcing, affirming sort of things if the coach was degrading. Um, so a- aspects like that, I thought, were really kind of interesting to understand how some athletes can succeed. At, and this was collegiate or higher, so collegiate to semi-pro, pro, and national or Olympic level athletes uh, that I interviewed. Well, and that so that's crazy that you can get all these different data points, and then it just it's actually showing how adaptable humans are because it, it's what we would all consider relatively poor coaching. Right. And like, that's Alex knows my background, but like I grew up probably what, what most would consider poor coaching, a lot of ver- like verbal abuse from wrestling coaches, stuff like that. And it just, it sounds bad, but it kind of made me better because yeah. I had to figure it out on my own. That made me think instead of just being told what to do. And it's cool to see that disparity where it could be a really bad coach, but you can still get to where you want to go because you get to trust yourself a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough one too, right? Cause we, we, we don't want, we don't desire trauma. Right. And I've heard some people argue for that. And I think that's wild that, um, you know, they want, they, they kind of say that, you know, we, we should be careful and mindful not to get rid of trauma or, um, uh, you know, highly stressful, possibly abusive situations. And you're kind of like, no, dude, like you can do that. Um, and people can endure and still succeed, mm-hmm. but you know, the, the, that is not the goal. We don't need to squeeze somebody so hard to produce the diamond. You can do it better. And we have yeah. plenty of examples to do it better, but I think that just explains or, or points to the lack of standards, regulation, um, you know, basic human dignity that we often have in sports uh, and coaching. 
and that people can get away with that sort of stuff. Um, and it's unfortunate. Why do you think in sports, there's like a unique opportunity to get away with, yeah, um, yep, yep. a lot of that. Before I forget, too, the, the Austin, this, the, the the term too, or, or some research areas called self-regulated learning or self-directed learning, yep. that are really quite interesting. I did a, a little project in grad school about that, and, and I know some other folks are studying that just a bit nowadays too in sport. But in, in my little class project that I actually had IRB approval for, and if I if I knew anything back then, I would have finished this. Um, the the I saw a correlation between the higher achieving athletes and their self-directed learning. Okay. So the, the better athletes yeah. are the ones that could direct their own learning yeah. um, and grow. And, and it was sports specific. My, my, at least my little study was that yeah. I didn't ask them about learning math or learning in college in general, but specific learning to their sport. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you think about if I think about for me, right, I, I read weightlifting, powerlifting, bodybuilding magazines. Yeah. Uh, I watched those videos. I talked, I literally was, you know, I'd go down the road and found my aunt knew a bodybuilder that was in the school that she taught that she was a librarian. So I went and talked to this guy when I was, you know, 17. He's thinking I'm nuts. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and I was popping horse, pills. I was popping, I was popping amino acids because that was what the GNC so said to buy. And you know, they're, they're garbage. You know, you're just wasting your money. Yeah. Um, so that that guy really helped me out. Um <laughs> yeah. well, I, I think that's you know. Uh, mixed martial artists to a nutshell, man. Like we talk all the time about mixed martial artists have to be self-starters and have to go out and seek that because being a relatively new sport, right? Then 25, 30 years, UFC has been in business. It's like, that's a lot of what you have to do is self-directed and you're running your own business. You're an independent contractor as a mixed martial arts fighter. Like all of that has to be self-directed. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and I just studied a bit years ago, a little bit of Jeet Kune Do with a um, descended down the line from Bruce Lee in, in Knoxville, Tennessee, when I was in grad school. And I loved it, man. I, I wish I could do the same thing. If I had more time and, and, and you know, energy and resources, I'd keep doing it or go back to him. He's fantastic. Um, but, you know, right, like when you read Jeet Kune Do or, or study Bruce Lee's arts, then, right, it's all about studying it's about learning and taking what's useful for you and then you know uh, continuing to build your skill set and figure out what works and and go with it Um, so the the idea of learning so many different skills you know from wrestling to grappling to i mean i i'm I'm not going to start name dropping i just you know uh, boxing muay thai and all that like and then when you're in a scenario or you develop you know who you are as a fighter in this case uh, I mean, what a kind of a fascinating thing to, you know, figure out what your strengths, weaknesses are and how to exploit your opponent. Yeah. That's tough stuff. Well, and it's cool. It's cool to see. So I have, I work with mostly fighters like Alex, but it's cool to see the people that are really good at self-directed learning. Like I have a kid, he's 24. I, I think he'll probably be in the next three years, probably top 15 in the UFC. That's how good this kid is, but he does it all on his own. He's like, I know exactly what I need to do. He's made his own little team around him and he knows this is what I need here. This is what I need here. This is what I need here. And then you see some of these vets that kind of get told what to do. They, they've kind of gotten away from self-directed learning and you can see the difference a in the passion they have for the sport, which I think is huge for success. And B on top of all of that, it's, you see a difference in how they perform in practice and how they perform in the cage, because if they're, if they're able to kind of have a say in their learning, at least, and correct me if I'm wrong, if they can have a say in what they're doing, they're going to be more passionate. If they're more passionate, they're going to give more into their sport which typically leads to better outcomes. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, so my other kind of one of my other lines of research too is, is, is about disciplinary practices 
you know, how typical practices and training and coaching leads to the production of docile bodies, you know, bodies that are moldable, but also this sort of negative effect that they're lacking in motivation. They, they have an identity that is, you know, perhaps solely athletic, but also rather narrow uh, in that athletic identity. They don't develop their own, you know, learning skills or there's no place to, for that to flourish. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, yeah, that's the, the work of Michel Foucault and others in sociology of coaching then that have kind of explored that and the what we call taken for granted assumptions or these unintended consequences of right a coach knowing best, supposedly, all the time, or at least pretending to, you know, and then using that expertise across the span of the coach and whoever else is involved to basically completely control every aspect of the athletes' lives. Uh, and, and, you know, kind of easy example for folks that are trying to figure this out and listen and, and, and make sense of this is uh, Ivan Drago versus uh, Rocky. And yeah. there's a Rocky four, you know, so Rocky, right, is, is rugged Rocky training in, you know, the snow and, and hauling the wood and all that. And Ivan Drago's got all the resources available, but he's got everybody telling him what to do and this and that. And you can see, like, he's he's just a piece of clay that they're trying to mold him up and turn him into, you know, a, a, a big freak. But at the end of the day, you know, he doesn't have the sense of purpose. That's how at least it's portrayed in the movie. But yeah, both of them are probably wearing a little secret sauce themselves. But <laughs> that's besides the point. <laughs> well, no, and I think that's, that's usually important, the docile bodies piece. Um, as far as, like, I've had multiple coaches tell me, um, I want my athlete to be, like, uh, on a video game controller. You know, yeah, where I can yeah, say yeah. this and they do that. And, um, and it's that easy, but that doesn't all the time lead to the best outcomes. I think there's, there's a ton, like you said, unintended consequences or, or even just consequences that we as coaches accept. It's like, you know, well, that's going to suck for them, but they're going to have to figure it out. But, and, and we accept them because we're the ones we don't necessarily attribute it to ourselves, but we're the ones who produced it. Yeah. You know, right? If if you're going to control, try to control everything, then it's your ass is producing everything like that. And so, if you don't like what you see, you might need to look in the mirror and figure out how to change yourself and your practices. You know, not just blame in many cases young people. I was going to say, yeah, this always works to the best, and then all of a sudden the athlete loses, but it's their fault they lost. Yeah, yeah, they didn't listen hard enough. They didn't do enough training. They didn't they should have trained harder. Uh, they didn't eat right, sleep right. I saw it too, and this is an interesting one, and I'm not going to say who, but I saw a PhD with expertise in MMA, was overseeing some of the sports science of a, apparently a top fighter, yeah. and this fighter, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to reveal, I'm going to try to to hide the the uh, sex or gender of the fighter, but this fighter got uh, significant cramping water loss and had to go to the hospital in in a serious medical condition. And that was the end of this particular block of training in the missed competition, uh, all under the name of optimizing performance, you know, periodization and peak performance and being so detailed and careful with the science and trying to do the, you know, all these different things, you know, the lack of self-awareness or critical reflection. Yeah not just to apologize, but to realize your sports science is hurting people. Your inability to observe what's right in front of you and to think about things differently and realize that your own tools, right? If you're a, 
a, a surgeon, everything, and, and your only tool is a scalpel. Everything looks like a surgery, you know, that sort of thinking. Like you, you got to have more broader, deeper, flexible thinking and realize that we are, as people, our thinking and our emotions, all of that is constructed by our environment around us. Again, it's what has enabled us to think this way, what is acting upon us, how can we act upon the world and all these different force relations. Uh, that's really kind of where some of the, the other research and coaching education is going to, is to trying to get folks to be more critical of relations of power and ways of knowing and realizing that uh, nobody has the answer. Nobody has the truth. And that we really need to think of carefully about what's happening and how this is affecting folks. And, and, and at least having the self-awareness to realize, you know, I'm, I'm going to put my line in the sand and this is how we're going to do things. Um, and if you're that rigid, you know, okay, at least be aware of it though. But, you know, you don't think you need to do that. That's kind of the, like the ugly side of coaching and like, coach researching is kind of uncovering all of those um, traditional or all of those very set in place procedures that, you know, coaches go through. And I mean, um, strength and conditioning coaching is as dogmatic as it comes, right. As far as just sets, reps, this, do your squats like this. And, you know, on the whistle that don't step out of line in this sense, but what are some of the, the, the positive points from, you know, coach research and coach education that we can highlight as far as ways to avoid these negative outcomes or ways that coaches can start to, you know, embark on a journey beyond what they've always known or what um, is poor coaching. Uh, uh, in the earlier, you actually, you touched on too, what enables kind of poor coaching or, other problematic aspects, and I'll, and I'll say yeah, abuse yeah. again because I'm studying abuse and it's fresh in my mind. So, and, and we'll contrast it with positive, you know, coaching or desirable coaching too, you know, right? So, all of these things too, right? I actually, this is like quantifying it. You asked about quantifying it earlier. These are subjective judgments. Even if you quantify it, that's still subjective, okay? So, and like, right. if you're a sports scientist and you just lost your mind over me saying, Quantifying and is subjective, you know, good because it is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, amen. You can make stats say whatever you want, right? The the idea that sports science is somehow objective and pure and this and that, uh, no, it's not. Especially once it's put into practice. Like if you're doing it in the laboratory, fine. Your force plate, your blood draw, your VO two max testing, um, your all of your strength, or other key performance, physical performance indicators, um, internal load monitor, whatever it might be, fine, okay. But when you start doing things in everyday life now and it comes out of the laboratory, it now becomes value-loaded, subjective, and even neutrality and objectivity is a value. So we got to really scrutinize sports science and get real with this stuff too. Um, you know, and, and the idea that it's a panacea or, you know, obviously you're a chiropractor, right? So right, we can demean that in profession too, right? Well, what's wrong with you? Let's just manipulate you and that'll fix everything. You know, we'll just... You know, it doesn't matter what, you know, you got a headache, you got joint pain, you get, well, this, we're just going to manipulate and pop you and everything will be great. Exactly. Turn the lights on, COC1. Yeah, yeah. It that's it. <laughs> you know, by the way, when we're done here, I need you to look at my car. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in the same <laughs> breath. Love it. The, uh, the, poor co- the poor coaching and positive coaching, one, I think it's enabled by the standards the lack of standards that we have for coaches. I mean, I, I just really want to emphasize coaching is not a profession. Again, lose your mind over me saying that because it's not. It does not meet standards. There's the education, the regulation, the ethics, the accountability. 
it does not really exist. Okay. So state standards, federal standards and the U S in particular, I'm, I'm focused on, we don't have these characteristics of a profession. So it's more like a pseudo or a quasi profession. Um, and that now gives us the potpourri, the it lacks of standardization, right? Like you could not get out of, we'll take chiropractic. You could not get out of, uh, uh, DC deal, DC school. Yep. DC. DC. You cannot get out of DC school without having studied extensive anatomy, Correct. Yeah. right? Uh, muscle you know, and joint structure and function mm-hmm. in coaching. It's all over the place. We might have some recommendations. We have degree programs, but in terms of actual standards that everybody has to do it, everybody kind of has a baseline of these things and thinks about it and it's appropriate. Right. And, and the other aspects I said, so we don't have that. Does that mean that we also don't have research on, you know, positive coaching? No, we, we do. Right. We have, I just said too, we have a lot of research that talks about athletes preferences and how athletes want to be coached. That is one area. That's one body of research that people can look at to better understand athletes want what they want good training and instruction. So they want to develop technical and tactical soundness. They want a coach to you know, mention and do something about mental skills, physical skills, keep them healthy, uh, provide social support, positive feedback. That does not mean just praising them willy-nilly, but it also means when they do something good, reinforcing it and being, ex- especially for kids, right? Being excited, being enthusiastic, encouraging. That's why kids want to go to school or they want to play sports because it's a good time. They drop out because it's a bad time. It's the same similar thing in, in professional sports or collegiate sports. Why do they leave? I mean, because they have other they have enough money or they have enough opportunity to go somewhere else. They don't want their head getting smashed in. Uh, you know, they're 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 tired of the injuries, or they don't feel like you know there's a plan, or uh, they don't feel a sense of belonging, uh, or it's a positive environment with good people with good qualities and characters and virtues. Um, trying to make sure that their the athletes' needs are addressed. You know, there's another by growing body of literature on caring and needs in sport and coaching that I think is going to be tremendously impactful uh, to actually stop and think about, well, you know, what does the athlete need and then how can I as a coach serve the athlete rather than using the athletes as pawns for competition in order to just win or increase revenue. Yeah. Uh, you know. There's a variety of things. I mean, I can't just, you know, summarize bodies of literature. You know, <laughs> I mean, I guess I could. I mean, you yeah, could. So, yeah, please give us multiple meta-analysis worth of data in the next. Uh, Who turned you into minutes. a quant head? Meta-analysis too. Oh, my God. <laughs> What's happening oh, here? Oh, my God. Um, all right, uh, Dr. G. What, um, so I was, doing a little, I was doing a little bit of research don't, into you. Don't say that, please. And Yes, say that more. <laughs> Uh, no. So what I've, what I was looking at too, is one of the things you had said in one of your studies was a functionalist approach versus a bioscientific approach to uh, yeah. conditioning Yeah, that interested me, but I wasn't able to grasp it right away. Is there any yeah. chance you could dive a little bit deeper into both of those? Yeah. So in the literature, we would refer to a few different things. So back in the day, a functionalist view looked at society as a series of kind of systems and functions just like a system in the body okay. and that everything functions in society according to how it's supposed to, and to keep society together and, and keep things moving along and bioscientific as well, similar kind of right. The biological systems and, and, and of the body and scientific evidence as 
the peak of the hierarchy of knowledge, right? So science, as we kind of understand it, you know, for the most part nowadays, in general, is only a, you know, a relatively modern uh, event, right? This is not something that, uh, you know, as I'm watching uh, all these Viking TV shows on Netflix, you know, they're not sitting around debating, you know, the, the you know, too many scientific uh, debates. Right. Um, you know, there was, there were some scientists back then, but uh, not quite modern science as we know it now. So bioscientific, right, is, go back to that, is understanding people and humanity as biological material things mm-hmm. where scientific understandings are top, you know, right? So you can't argue about, you, we're not going to just have an argument about the femur or, you know, the humerus and the quadricep muscle and, and that, you know, that these are bones and, and muscle tissue is a, is a fact, right? right? That's a thing. But so that in that sense of, thinking functionalist and bioscientific, the, the argument that I'm making and others are making in that breath of, of invoking those terms is saying, hey, uh, these are important ways of, of people that people have, people have made these terms up to help understand the world in front of them, that we can understand how things are working together and functioning as systems and interconnect. But that's not the only way to understand it. That is a dominant way. That's a very historically and uh, pervasive way. And it's important, but it's not the only way. There are, we have psychological and sociocultural ways of understanding too. And so to build off of all that, uh, and it's still, this is now 40 plus years ago, but you know, others too have talked about a little bit more holistic view of the, of the self or the, of the human being, a biopsychosocial. And that's a, a term that myself and others are using, right? That we are not just biological pieces of tissue, but we are also psychological. We have minds, we have emotions, uh, we have actions and interactions and, and values. And those things are situated in sociocultural contexts and histories and ways of knowing. Um, and so, this, you know, I was just watching, right, because I'm a total nerd too. And I, I nerd out on YouTube. I was listening to some debates about, from um, uh, Popper, Karl Popper and Thomas Kuhn. So these are two philosophers, uh, historians of science debating about hypothesis testing, objectivity, you know, that kind of functional bioscientific, also called positivist view compared to a more socially constructive historical view that Kuhn was advancing, you know, so there's some good kind of readings and lectures like that to kind of help juxtapose the different ways of knowing. And you might think about it like going to college too, right? Like you've got biology department, you got psychology department, you got sociology department, all these other departments as well, but kind of their way of doing science and what they actually do, not what they say uh, varies greatly. And so folks like me and others are starting to kind of trying to bring in more, especially sociocultural ways of understanding that, that also connect with biology and psychology. And it's kind of a unique way that I think in strength conditioning and sport coaching biologists or in this, or in our case, physiologists, biomechanists at times, right. Don't appreciate the psychosocial aspects. Uh, now, some of them very do, and they're very gracious about that. And I think it's, you know, and, and we have some interesting conversations, but we need more really interdisciplinary and uh, diverse scholarship to make sense of the, the real world and not just what, we can isolate and test in a laboratory. And Alex, to your point too, one of my pet peeves is uh, the ability of sports scientists to quantify anything. Yeah. 
Yeah. It just, I mean, in some ways, you know, we're all making shit up, but they're really making shit up. I mean, like, <laughs> you know, five seconds, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, you know, uh, isometric mid-thigh pull, a, a, a pull from the floor, you know, a pull, you know, we're just going to keep making up different angles to do stuff. And just we're creating all of this so-called research. But are we really making knowledge? Are we creating things that are, you know, interesting and useful? Oof. Yeah, it's like tiny. Uh, the way that Dr. Mills uh, had explained a little bit to me is like we keep pointing out like tiny micro dots of information. Like we know this thing now. We know this little thing now. We know that thing now. It's like, but wow. we put it together. Like, what do I do with this whole of micro dots? Like what are, what are we actually making or piecing together as a body of knowledge? Right. Yeah. Like I, I see it as like, we're, we're trying to make a multivariable <clears throat> equation, which is performance, like being better at your sport, just univariable. And that's just, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work. It yeah. Reductionist, to- <laughs> reductionist thinking to it. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give the shade, right. The critique of the qualitative folks too, at times is that they don't appreciate multifactorial um, you know, dynamic processes. Now, they're, they're, they can be complexity sort of theorists and they can believe in it in processes and interactions among different things, but they can also dismiss all sorts of, you know, biological, bioscientific, you know, ways of knowing. Well, you know, I also, I point out the example, right? Like for a, for a, uh, a strength athlete, uh, power lifter, shot put thrower, weight lifter, do I, am I going to, am I so relativistic that I'm going to advocate that they go out and run miles upon miles upon miles and not be concerned about their caloric intake of protein intake. No, no, that's, that's silly too. Right. So we can get a little bit kind of carried away about these things. And we've really got to be a little bit more nuanced and precise about what's the problem questions that we're looking at. And then how can we go about understanding that kind of deeply and making these connections? And on the back of that too, like for a coach that's hearing a lot of this coach research or this, um, qualitative argument um, for the first time. Wh- what are some first steps? What? How can a coach get more into this, or or even apply it, or like I said, just know yeah. more and be really just introduced? Try to, to be better. Right. <laughs> yeah. So a few years back, I did a presentation at the uh, National Strength Conditioning Coaches Conference, NSCA conference. Yeah. And I kind of gave an overview of the field of coaching education. As a, as a really fun presentation um, because coaching education has really grown in the last 20 years. Uh, and when you think about that, and I put that in context of physical education, now physical education in the U.S. has been around for 120 plus years and really, really was innovative and had a great you know gymnastic space. And we've invented sports, a lot of sports here, um, and, and it's very popular in the U.S. But coaching as, as a science and coaching science literature in the last 20 years has exploded. Whereas like physical education then by contrast has really taken a hit and gone down, which is unfortunate too. Um, but there's, there's some research. We actually have a paper right now in review with the international sport coaching journal that tracks uh, the lead author, Sarah Campbell, uh, who is, is currently a doc student at Georgia, who's actually joining us at the university of Denver uh, this uh, summer uh, for, to be a faculty. So uh, ter- terrific uh, research that Sarah is leading that, did a, a bibliometric analysis of all this research in the last 20 years in coaching education and coaching science. Uh, so the point of that was, well, look at articles like that, right? It exists. And yeah. uh, I'll mention three really big journals. Uh, so this uh, article is in going to be hopefully published with the International Sport Coaching Journal, ISCJ. Um, ISCJ has been around, oh, I don't know, you know, 
10 years, 15 years. Uh, it started off as the Journal of Coaching Education uh, years ago with AFERD, now Shape America. And then it, it got out of that and formed a bigger kind of broader journal called International Sport Coaching Journal. Uh, and actually, Dr. Callery, another uh, instructor for us at DU, is a uh, associate professor at Cape Brighton University. And not that anybody can see me now listening on podcast, but we, Dr. Callery and I edited a book together on coaching education. Uh, so there are books like this. Um, there are publishers such as Rutledge and Human Kinetics that are very likely the two largest publishers of this kind of research uh, and this kind of work. Um, so I would definitely check out Rutledge, Human Kinetics, uh, fitness information technology at WVU is also a publisher in this space. There's a few other smaller ones too. Sage Publications has some good stuff. Um, so International Sport Coaching Journal, um, I'm associate editor for them. And then there's another journal called Sport Coaching Review. I'm an editorial board member there too. Uh, Sport Coaching Review publishes a lot of you know quantitative and qualitative uh, research, uh, mixed method research, a very, very strong outlet for sociocultural and some psychological uh, research um, using qualitative methods in particular, a lot of interesting studies out of there. That that uh, editor-in-chief is Robin Jones. Uh, so Robin Jones, the folks that I mentioned earlier, I would check out their work. Robin Jones, Paul Potrack, Chris Christian, Jim Dennison, and, and their students, right? So I kind of consider uh, Jim Dennison was a mentor of mine from afar, and I met Jim in 2008 at the North American sociology of sport conference. Um, so looking at their work and then the second generation sort of folks, I think like myself, uh, Lee Nelson, Ryan Groom. Uh, I mean, I just, I'd go on the editorial board thing and just start listing people. I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to just name <laughs> drop people, but if you go on the editorial board uh, or look at where people got their PhDs, you can often just like coaching, you can kind of find the coaching tree or the scholarly tree. Yeah. And there's another journal called the, International Journal of Sports Science and Coaching. Uh, that's actually the oldest journal that's published now by Sage and uh, Simon Jenkins is their editor, and they do a variety of biopsychosocial. Bio, 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 they do physiology, they do coaching psychology, they do sociocultural, so quite eclectic and varied. Um, but those are the three main coaching science, coaching education journals. Yeah. Um, you know, very rarely do you see, like in Journal of Strength Conditioning Research, Journal of Sports Orthopedics or, or Biomechanics or, you know, the Sport Nutrition Journal, do you see coaching sort of literature? If they do, they're usually looking at like what sort of knowledge assessment of coaches or practitioners, you know, what do they know? Right. So maybe some sort of standardized exam because they're trying to show usually a discrepancy between what the, the researchers or standards thinks that coaches should know versus what they actually know. But that's about the limitation. That's a, that's a very, it's important research, but there's a lot of other interesting stuff out there too. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and I guess last thing we can end on or capstone as we go, um, for young coaches out there, guys that are just getting started out of their undergrad or they, have, they think that I can make a profession in coaching, even though we've established it's not a profession. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> What are some of like the, the must-have skills or the must-have knowledge for a young up-and-coming strength coach, skill coach, um, yeah. anybody that wants to make a make a career in that realm? It's always nice when I ruin words like profession for people. And they feel like, <laughs> coaching profession. And I'm like, eh, not so much. Um, coaching career, we'll say. 
Cooking career, I could work. Uh, the craft, and this is actually too. Like this is the crap that I read in grad school, right? Is is teaching a craft, a, you know, a job, a profession? Like, what is it? You know, um, and then you know, you're like, oh my gosh, I got to write an argument about this, uh, and that's what you do. Uh, so this is good. There are standards. There, there are there, and there's examples of national standards. So there's a group called um, uh, the USCCE, US Center for Coaching Excellence. There's International Council for Coaching Excellence, the ICCE. There's NASPE, uh, National Association of Sport and Physical Education. These organizations, member organizations, just like coaching organizations and, and other sport, NSCA and others, the, the coach educators and, and physical educators in these groups devise coaching standards. For example, you know, philosophy and ethics that coaches should know about basic safety, not only biologically, but culturally. So like, let's take strength conditioning as a good example there, right? It would, it, we, should, we would all generally agree that coaches should understand, you know, forms of stress, physical stress on the body, dehydration, um, you know, sudden cardiac death, um, special chronic diseases like diabetes that could lead to, or sickle cell trait which, that could lead to sudden death. Like we should know all these things. Well, we don't. Not, not everybody knows about these things because, again, it's not regulated. There's no standardization. But these things are really important, especially biologically. However, you should also know socioculturally and psychologically that what are the sort of traits that enable and the environments that enable coaches and athletes to push too hard and condition people literally to death. Right. And I've and I've written about this a bit. I don't think it's a biological problem. I think we have plenty of good biological research that shows what the problem is on this. But psychosocially is the problem. And so we can't just keep pointing to evidence base, biological evidence base. We need more regulation and psychosocial education to change these corrosive cultures that literally kill people. I mean, when, when you have 16, 17, 18, 19 year olds that die every year in football or in conditioning drills, that's a problem that we can fix. And I, again, I think it's biological, but we know enough to know how to avoid these things. What we need is more psychosocial stuff. Um, so in that end, right, we need basic biological uh, safety. You know, that, that's part of our philosophy and ethics. Uh, we need to know about, you know, psychosocial aspects in, in your case uh, of weight cutting, you know, and rapid weight loss, right? That it's not just a biological thing. It's a psychosocial thing that we're always trying to push and get this edge. And uh, biologically, we know folks are dehydrated, that they're getting weaker. Um, it can lead to long-term body image as well as biological system failures. Um, but again, we keep trying to do these things. Uh, rather than maybe a more appropriate plan um, that's more developmental. So we need to know about, you know, human development, growth in human development. Um, I always I sometimes have to remind myself not to take for granted, you know, peak height velocity in teenagers. You know, when uh, kids start to grow and go through puberty and have growth spurts, that they have po points of weak, weaker bones and more predisposition to overuse injuries and chronic and, and, and acute and chronic injuries. Uh, so that's important to know. We need to know about, you know, power, coaches' use of power and how they exercise power. And that if you tell a young person or an old person, you know, hey, you should do this drill or eat this stuff, they might go ahead and do it. I mean, what, you know, like I was just uh, last week, we were talking about in visiting all these sites. And, you know, one of the coaches said, yeah, you know, the kids will run through the wall for you. That's not necessarily a good thing. 
<laughs> right? Like, I don't want my kid running through a wall for you. I understand the metaphor, but like, don't run through walls. That's also like, you know, uh, usually pretty stupid, you know? So, right, like, be careful with that kind of stuff because that's an awesome degree of power that folks have. Um, yeah. You know, we can look at motivational theory and, and actually how can we motivate people to give them more intrinsic motivation uh, and, and help them find out what's valuable and, and direct their intensity of effort on some goal versus coercion, you know, making them stay to do the coach's bidding, to get the scholarship, to make the money. You know, these are all external things that are also enabling the poor coaching behaviors and the uh, harmful practices that we see. So we have, we have a lot of good stuff, but we just need a better, we really don't have a, a functioning system. So we need more functionalism. There you go. Full circle. Everybody, thanks for tuning in and good night. Oh, All right. right. That's go. not it. I That's not it. On the outro. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. But well, thank you very much, Dr. G. Really appreciate sharing all your research and all the information. Um, again, I have a master's degree in it, but I thought this is a very unique aspect of coaching that, again, is relatively underground still. You know, it's like, how can we get a better funnel and system to get this information out to more people? And I think, I mean, this is one of the ways, right? People like to listen to podcasts so we can spread the word this way and then hopefully it'll snowball effect. It will be. I mean, that's why I'm, I'm happy to, to, uh, to be invited and to participate, you know, and, and always say yes and, and gracious that you wanted to have me on. And for the folks that are listening to, you know, right to life is a battle. Life is a struggle. You know, when you get over the naivety of trying to say things like, well, it shouldn't be political or, you know, why does it always feel like we're not making progress? Well, welcome to life. You got to be an active citizen and you got to participate in you know, there's a there's a variety of forces fighting out there, and you know we got to try to kind of pull each other up and do the right things and do better uh, when we can. Um, well, I thank you for doing that. I thank you for putting your best foot forward here as well. But uh, yeah, that was uh, building a fighter podcast. Thank you everybody for listening. Um, keep checking checking out our episodes. We've got programs online and everything that way. Um, shoot us a message, and we'll uh, help you with some of your coaching studies, Doctor G. Before I forget. What are some ways that people can contact you if they have questions about uh, more things that, that you haven't mes- mentioned? Get at, get at me on the TikTok at Charlie <laughs> Emilio. I, I think that's your name. No, I, I, I don't have a TikTok, but I got uh, Dr. Garrity on Twitter, Facebook. I think it's just Brian Garrity. Same thing on the grant Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, all that. Just Brian Garrity, Dr. Garrity on all those different sites. So follow me at that. Tweet me, harass me. I'll follow you back and, and message with you and we'll have a great time. <laughs> not not in a smart ass way at all. <laughs> not at all. No, no. I'm, <laughs> in my in a few in my future and former life, I'm gonna give, dabble in comedy though and see if I can cause some trouble. Well, please do. I would I would be I would be entertained to watch that. So that'd be great. But thank y'all for listening. Uh this has been Alex Friedman with my partner. Awesome, Shane. And our special guest. Dr. Garrity. Boom. (laughs) Hashtag. We are out. Yeah.